Hello. This is a preview of my interview with Anton Jaeger on the rise of left-wing populism and the influence of Chantal Mouffe. If you want to hear the full episode, you can subscribe to our Patreon for $3 a month. You'll get an interview episode as well as our book club readings every month, so that gets you twice as much content for $3. Now on to the conversation. You mentioned, you know, that she's someone who thinks in terms of enemies or um, adversaries. The the influence of Carl Schmitt is very clear in her work. Um, but for people who maybe haven't aren't that familiar, can you maybe go into a bit of how how she thinks of those of that friend enemy or ally adversary distinction and how she's kind of deploying that Schmidtian idea in terms of democracy, especially since, you know, in Schmidt's original conception, it's much more about the uh, sovereign kind of state uh, rather than, you know, uh, advancing kind of like democracy for itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll get back to the NGO issue a bit later because I think it fits into the historical story which we mm -hmm. have to tell when we when we have when we want to understand Muff's inspiration by Schmidt. But to just get back to the way she thinks in enemies. So as I said, there's a first phase and a second phase to her career. The first phase, I think, the main enemy is an orthodox, stale, semi-Stalinized Marxism, which is clearly leaving the scene by the late eighties, while the enemy really becomes roles in liberalism or a form of mainstream Anglo-Saxon quiescent liberalism in the 1990s. Um, but I think the reason she turns to Schmidt, um, which is really a product of the second phase, insofar as Schmidt is less present in the 1980s because he fulfills less of a useful role against the Marxists. Um, because the, the critique of the Marxists is very much that they haven't really been able to become democratic. They've never been proper Democrats, and there's always been this Leninist temptation to completely suspend democratic norms or suspend the democratic game and just seize power. But in the 1990s, as Marxism disappears from the scene, and she faces a liberalism that's extremely consensual and therefore seems to quieten and muffle social conflict or political conflict, she turns to Smith, I think, in a way to think with Schmidt, against Schmidt, but mainly to tease out contradictions in liberalism. And of course, Schmidt has always been one of the greatest uh, thinkers of the contradictions of liberalism. So for people who don't know him, he was a, uh, a German polit a political philosopher who uh, first began his career in the 1920s and 1930s in the Weimar Republic, who become very famous uh, with a series of books and pamphlets, mainly published in the 1920s, and who has a notorious, you could say, liaison or a short episode with the Nazis, um, although he never becomes what you could call a full Nazi apparatchik. Um, so he's definitely tempted by it. And at the end of his career, he describes it as, I was infected by the Nazi basilisk, but I never became fully sick of it or something like that. Um, but Schmidt's very idea is to model a classical critique of parliamentary democracy and of a form of parliamentary liberalism, which basically states that the incapacity liberals have is to think through politics as an autonomous sphere in itself. So liberals have this perpetual temptation to reduce politics either to law or to norms or to economics, 
and thereby to drown the essence of what politics is in these other spheres. And Schmidt's main project is to say, no, there is something irreducible, um, untranslatable about what politics is about. And this is the distinction between friend and enemy, which is the kind of categorical distinction that drives all political activity. And what's important in difference to Marx's currents is that Marxism has a notion of enemies, of what you could call class enemies, but those class enemies don't, themselves don't have an existential role in Marxism. So the point about Marxism is emancipation. There are obviously questions what, are, what you're going to do with the class enemy, but the ultimate goal is the utopian horizon you need to create for the universality of mankind. While in Schmidt, there's very much a sense in that politics cannot happen without enemies. If you have no enemies left, then there's not going to be any politics anymore. And the reason this appeals to the movement mainly in the 1990s is because the form of liberalism that becomes hegemonic at the time, both in roles and both in Habermas, is very typical for its ideal of building politics about what you could call friends. So he said, like, we have a social contract. There is a consensual set of rules which everyone has agreed on. And this is the arena in which the game of the social is played. Um, and obviously, that creates the illusion of a kind of equilibrium or a way of completely pacifying social conflict, which Mouffe again thinks leads to post-politics or leads to the complete elimination of any type of political conflict, as Schmidt showed before. But the way she diverges from Schmidt, and I think this is one of the trickiest parts of the theory, which a lot of people sometimes look past, is that she doesn't want to think through what you call the politics of friends, but she doesn't quite follow Schmidt in this idea that you need to have an absolute notion of the enemy, um, which could potentially be exterminated. So where she concedes the liberals is by saying, it's true, politics needs to happen within a certain set of rules. There needs to be a consensus which governs all political actors. But at the same time, you need a, a degree of friction or you need a degree of what she calls antagonism to actually make politics work. So that's when she says, Schmidt thinks in terms of antagonism, I think in terms of agonism. And antagonism is the politics of the enemies, what you could call is her politics of frenemies. So insofar as these are people who are my friends, who I'm obviously not going to hurt physically, who will be part of the same parliamentary game, but who are still in a certain degree my opponents, and therefore I have to see them as my opponents and not necessarily um, as friends. So again, she tries to build this middle road, both between Habermas roles and all these consensus liberals and the almost semi-fascist Schmidt option, which basically says politics is just about eliminating your enemies, while the liberals say this is just about having friends. And she says, no, if we use Schmidt to destabilize and to undermine some of the presuppositions of liberalism, we can actually build a much richer theory of democracy as well. The kind of way that the Marxist political project is collapsing in some of these debates, it can come across as a bit like chicken and egg, where it's like, how much of this is with, um, for instance, in, in the UK, there's kind of this stuff going on about to what degree was a turn towards um, focusing on hegemony and stuff with people like Stuart Hall, who I actually like Stuart Hall, but, uh, you know, 
was kind of taken in by, you know, going with new labor for a while, even though he ended up rejecting it. But um, to what degree is it that just material conditions to put in Marx's speak is falling apart? So people are kind of grasping at all these different things and trying to reconstitute politics. Um, but on the other hand, you sometimes see people saying, well, people were turning to all these things with psychoanalysis and um, kind of vaguer notions of hegemony outside of maybe what someone like Gramsci kind of originally intended. And it had a, uh, an effect on these political parties that kind of deteriorated their politics. Um, I, I know there's a essay by Sivanadan, I think is his, how you pronounce his name called all that is all that melts into sol air is solid where he's mm. kind of responding to the, the new times um, and its relation to new labor. Um, so how do you kind of see the back and forth between, you know, on the one hand, there's a definitive sense that, you know, the relationship of a labor Marxist based project to uh, the Orthodox or, you know, Soviet Union kind of stuff is necessarily kind of falling apart and breaking down because of first political revelations about what was going on in the Soviet Union and then the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also what um, was the, were these political theories merely reacting to that? Or do you think that they also had an effect on how politics maybe oriented itself um, for better or worse um, or accelerated some of these problems? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a very, very large story which we can take in all kinds of directions. Mm -hmm. All right. But I think the first point of entry really here is the reception of Gramsci scholarship in the 1970s and a particular way in which Gramsci, mainly in the British setting and also, as you mentioned, in the New Times or the, uh, the Communist Party setting, um, in Britain, was interpreted as having an exclusively cultural notion of hegemony. So people have been returning to the notebooks more recently and rereading them, and it's very clear that Gramsci's notion of hegemony um, is, it means a lot of things in a lot of contexts, but it's socially quite robust. So it definitely means the idea that a certain social group is able to order the social game in such a way that it also plays in its advantage. What this means in a social setting is not just uh, cultural or access to the media, it also means uh, mass membership parties, it means certain institutional infrastructure, it means actually participating in elections, it means also being militarily prepared. So there are so many sides to being hegemonic for Gramsci that it's just absolutely impossible to say that this is an exclusively cultural notion. What happens in the 1970s, though, and this, I think, has partly to do with the dynamics of a certain academic industry, is that Gramsci gets read almost exclusively as a cultural theorist. So someone who recognizes the importance of the superstructure of culture for politics. Um, so the idea is that basically, uh, in order to achieve hegemony from the left in society, the most important thing is that you maintain control over what you could call the culture industry. Huh. So that means you have to have your own newspapers, but it can quickly descend also in what you could call 
a sort of soft power or PR approach to politics where the only way you exercise hegemony is basically by having a very, very strong media apparatus or having a very strong media presence. And again, I think this reading of Gramsci is rational in the British 1970s, mainly because what you had is a working class that was culturally quite hegemonic. So this is what happened in the 50s and 60s is with bands such as the Beatles, but also with the massive influx of working class people into education and into the arts and into journalism. There is a real sense that although the working class has not economically become the dominant group in society, or at least not politically, at least culturally, there's a real sense in which, yes, um, British culture or parts of mainstream British culture have been massified. They have been voluntarized to a certain extent. Um, but the issue is that in the 1970s, this particular cultural victory of the working class is interpreted as a way of saying that only cultural hegemony really matters. And this is, I think, what leads to um, certain kinds of pathologies in parts of the British left that give this idea that the way to beat Thatcher, because this is where the challenge becomes very acute, is by beating her with better soft power rather than actually building these institutions and these counter societies that can actually counter her politics in a material sense. And I think Stuart Hall reflects the difficulty of this interpretation of hegemony in a, in a very good way, both as his status as a grandfather to cultural studies, of course, but also insofar as he was quite enthusiastic about Blair in the early moments of the Blair career. Because Blair is seen as a modernizer, Blair is someone who wants to drag the Labour Party away from this old workerist, almost unionist base, which clearly is hampering its ability to speak to middle class audiences, which Thatcher is obviously very good at. And then as Blair gets into power, Hall is quite enthusiastic. By the way, Laclau himself also expresses enthusiasm when Blair first ascends in the Labour Party. Once Blair actually makes the program clear and starts to implement policies, and as he, as you can see, is not at all that anti-neoliberal, um, both Hall and Lacroix have second thoughts and actually distance himself from that project. But what Blair and Hall and Lacroix shared in the 1980s or the late 1980s is a clear desire to bury this old uh, unionist, almost corporatist style of socialist politics which they thought was never going to be able to actually get the Thatcher uh, the government out of power. So in that sense, again, the, the fact that people read Gramsci in that way was understandable, but it did lead to a very narrow, exclusively cultural reading of political power, which I think confused the left mm -hmm. for a long time afterwards, because you had this idea that as long as you're control the symbolic repertoire of a certain society, you have power in that society as a whole. But I don't think that's the case at all, and I think the last 20 years have demonstrated that in a very, very spectacular fashion.